Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'll be looking at, uh, or continuing my look at, A Maze of Death by Philip K. Dick. This is his 1970 novel, one of two novels he published in 1970, along with our friends from Frolox 8, which I'm currently reading and, and or rereading, and I'm very excited to, to share my thoughts about that novel. It's such a such a great throwback to kind of earlier Philip K. Dick styles. You know, we get the classic dystopia and resist themes of resistance and not much world bending or or uh, alternate realities or, or 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 things like that. And no deep philosophy necessarily. It's it's just throwing us in a dystopia and seeing you know how we can break it down. I, I I love that about Dick's earlier works. So I'm really excited to talk about our friends for Full X Eight with you. But for now, we got to get through uh, a maze of death. Um, one of his bleakest novels, obviously, um, uh, really showing the worst aspects of, of humanity. Uh, they're all on stage. I, I've said in the previous two episodes that I think this is uh, a counterpart to Galactic Pot Healer. I think it's in some ways the anti-Galactic Pot Healer in that it deals with a similar theme, that of, of people trying to find meaning in one's life, and, and they try to find that through work. But while in Galactic Pot Healer, it's largely successful, for our characters, uh, in this one, it's it's a failure and it's futile. So, um, how it is that Dick came to such radically different conclusions? Is he trying to talk about the same issue from different angles? Um, I don't know. If you have thoughts about that, let me know. I, you know, is, I can't I can't imagine he changed his opinion radically in just one year. But I, you know, I think the common ground is the problem and. And the solution, the solution in Galactic Potter is a gestalt. It's working together, it's cooperating, it's doing something great. Um, in this novel, since they're never given that, they're never given something great to do. They're, they don't even get a mission. And they don't have any gestalt. They don't have any community. They, they just hate each other, essentially. And they, they start killing each other almost immediately, having power struggles. Um, it's, it's not possible for them to get to the place where the characters in Galactic Potter get. Um, that said, this is a maze of death is very interesting to people who, who want to explore this this theme of, of alternate realities and things like that. So um, and and kind of the the quirkiness of, of Dick, where you know you have drug use and alcoholism and mental illness and, and all that stuff. So it's like it's like some of his sixty novels in that way, even though it's it's much darker than anything he I think he wrote in the in the sixties. Even Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep has more hope than this one. This is the most hopeless tale. You know, that that he wrote. So in the first half, we're about ha we're over halfway through the novel already, and in the first half, these characters came. These it's fourteen. I, I think I said fifteen in the previous episode, but I miscounted. There's fourteen characters altogether who have arrived. First there was thirteen, and then one, Ned Russell came at the end of the, you know, like in chapter seven or eight. Uh, so, but you know, all these characters come, and they they're all on a presumed a presumed mission. They're all going to. I don't know, terraform this planet, settle it, do something, you know, do a scientific research. They don't know. They're supposed to get their mission when they get there. But they don't get the mission. The satellite that's supposed to communicate this in breaks down. And then they start thinking about what they can do to figure this out. And while they're trying to figure this out, or maybe find a way off the planet, they, people start dying. 
So uh, finally, an expedition about seven of these people. There's uh, two have already died, so we're down to down to twelve, and seven of these twelve leave the, to to explore a building that's in the horizon. And this building is in some way a cornerstone of everything that's happening. And I'll, I say more about how that is and how this world is built in in the previous episode or the previous two so go back and listen to them but as our as we left off in chapter eight our characters have arrived at this building and that's right where we pick up in chapter nine so there's words over this building that they all can see that sort of identifies what the building is supposed to be but we get everyone's subjective perspective of it so most of chapter nine is just we go character by character to to see what they see when they look at this building so the first character we hear from is Wade Frazier. Wade Frazier is the, got to get these people's roles um, right. He is the psychologist of the group. Everyone has a different job, right? Because um, they were all a, a motley crew of people sent to do this mission. So what he gets is that it's called winery. And so he th imagines what's inside is going to be like a, a cheese and wine tasting room, kind of like a like a brewery or like a, a winery that might serve, you know, customers. And that's what he thinks he's going to get. Maggie Walsh, Maggie Walsh, who is the theologian of the group, she's the one who, who studies uh, God. And uh, the theology on this in this world is kind of interesting because it's, it's one in which God actually exists and he's confirmed exists. And he has different parts and different avatars. It's kind of a mixture of Hinduism with some Christian theology grouped together. I talk about that in the previous episodes as well. But Maggie Walsh, she sees on the door Wittery, and here's her commentary on it. The great structure shimmered in the mobile sunlight, which spilled and dripped over its high surface. As if one could walk up in a single moat, she said to herself longingly, a carrier to the universal self, made partly of this world, partly of the next. Wittery, a place where knowledge is accumulated, but it made too much noise to be a book and tape and microfilm depository, where witty conversations take place. Perhaps the essence of man's wit was being distilled within. She might find herself immersed in the wit of Dr. Johnson or Voltaire. But wit did not mean humor. It meant perpacity. It meant the most fundamental form of intelligence coupled with a certain amount of grace. But overall, the capacity of man to possess absolute knowledge. Um, now, I'm going to go back to what the other people see here. But what's really happening here is people are projecting maybe their internal desires onto this, this building. Um, we, we've seen that this building is able to copy itself and most of the creatures on this planet are little printers that will print things if you give it to them. And uh, so it's kind of imprinting in their minds what they want. I think that's what Dick's trying to say here. Um, so next we, we meet um, Seth uh, Morley, who's basically our main point of view character if we have one. He's the, uh, he's the marine biologist. Um, and he sees the word stoppery. And he thinks that this is a, like a basically a jail or a sanitarium. That's what it means by stoppery. Then we have Mary, Seth Morley's wife, and she sees the word witchery before it, which also could mean something similar to, uh, you know, a place you would capture witches. But, but she just sees it as a... Um, Well, here's what she says. A witchery is a place where the control of people is exercised by means of formula and incantations. Those who rule are masters because of their contact with the witchery and its brew and its drugs. Um, now, so far we've seen all these are places that sort of lock people in 
right? Whether it's the wine tasting or the wittery library or um, stoppery, that literal prison. Um, so they seem to have a common theme there. Ignatz Thud, who works in thermoplastics, and he's more of the tough guy in the group, he sees the word hippery hoppery. And he tries to make sense of what that means. He actually thinks that where hippery hoppery is a place where animals and humans will, will have sex together. Then we have Beth, uh, jo, or Betty Jo Byrne, and she's the linguist of the group. And she sees the word uh, mechistry. And then she starts to have a vision of herself at the kind of at the nexus of the universe. And she starts to have a vision really of what kind of a theological vision. It's she sees herself like understanding the divine truth as revealed in the major book that unveils this theology, Spektoski's book, and she gets then drawn into the water and she walks off over to the water and and jumps in to drown herself. So she just kills herself in a river after this. Well, we get six points of view about this building. Well, one we don't get is Ned Russell. He's the one um, we don't. And, and I think Dick does this because we're meant to maybe temporarily suspect him of some greater role here. He's the one who arrives last. And some of the characters don't suspect him a little bit. So by keeping him outside, they keep that mystery. He keeps that mystery going. But anyways, as they're like looking at this building, Joe, or Betty Joe B. Byrne kills herself. And then they go to try to find her. When they realize she's missing, they go to try to find her. And eventually they find her body in the water. And then they start to head back to the base, to the, the camp, arguing over whose fault it was that she died. So they, they kind of fail in their mission to get into the building because of the death of, of Betty Jo Byrne. And then in the second half of Chapter 9, we kind of revert back to the camp where we meet the characters who are left behind. And there's, there's five characters who stay behind at the camp. Uh, two of them because they're too old. Uh, one is uh, this man, this, this old man, Kostler, who's like the janitor, Bert Kostler. And another, an old woman who's Roberta, Roberta Rockingham, and she's a sociologist and she's also too old to go. We have this young, this young man, Tony, Tony Dunkelweld, who works in soil stuff and he's a photographer. He's young and he's a bit of a mystic. Then we have the leader, the electrician, Belsner, and then uh, Milton Babel, the doctor. So these are the people who stayed behind at the base, and we get to see what's going on with them. And where we are is really in Tony Dunkelwelt's mind. And, and we've already kind of learned that he's a mystic. He's someone who is always in contact with the divine. He's even come up with divine truths about the nature of one aspect of God, the form destroyer, who, who he sees not as a separate deity, but actually part of the one true, true God. So he comes, kind of exposes himself as a bit of a heretic. Um, now he's, th he's thinking about how he killed Susie. So this was a bit of a mystery, who killed one of the other characters, Suzanne Smart. It's a bit revealed here that, uh, that he's the one who killed her. And then he has a vision of himself destroying the, the form destroyer, this avatar of God, the, the avatar of God that does the destructive phase. And I said before, this theology is a bit like Hinduism in that you have a... Uh, creator God, the manufacturer, the intercessors, the sustainer God, and then you have the form destroyer, the destroyer God, right? In the same way, Hinduism has Brahman, uh, like Vishnu and Shiva as these three three aspects. So he imagines himself having this thing he calls the the sword of sorry the sword of Chemosh, 
which he imagines he's destroying the form destroyer with. And then we flip to uh, Belzner's point of view, the leader of the group, the electrician, and he sees Tony killing the janitor, Bert Kostler. And Belzner is forced then to, to shoot him because he won't put down his, his weapon that he's using to kill Bert Kostler. So in this kind of delusion uh, or uh, some kind of mystic fantasy he's having, he kills one person as himself killed by, by Belzner. So at this point in the story, we actually have uh, five confirmed deaths. First, it was Ben Tallchief, who was killed, then Suzanne Smart. Uh, then we had B.J. Byrne killed in the water, drowned herself, and then Bert Kozler and Tony were killed in the same incident. So we're already like a third of our characters have, have died out. Um, and we kind of think that's where the novel's going. We're just going to, these people are just going to kill themselves or they're going to die until, until this experiment they're on um, kind of runs out. But that's the, that's the end of chapter nine. There's a lot going on in this chapter, a lot of deaths, a lot of character deaths, and um, but we did, we're not any closer to a real solution and explanation about where they are. So um, chapter ten. So the six survivors of the expedition to the building are returning back on a raft when they see something that's identified as the Grand Tench. The Tench is a type of printer, like all the beans on this planet are types of printers. Um, and these were explained before to, to Seth Morley. And they decide that maybe they can communicate with the Grand Tetch, get some answers from him. Now, normally it prints stuff. So if you put a pen in front of it, it will make a pen. It will be the same material. It will decay very fast. It won't last forever, but it will last long enough for you to do writing with. And if it dies out, you just get another one printed. But they begin to think that they can get answers by writing them questions, writing questions, putting the question on paper next to it, and then as it prints that paper, it's going to not print the words, it's going to print an answer to the question. And this is a very Philip K. Dickian device. Um, in fact, I think we've seen something similar to this before in some of his works. But this is maybe the clearest demonstration of this. I mean, he always has this idea that this, this printing is it creates kind of an inferior copy of things or a degraded copy of things. I, I urge you to, to re-look re at Pay for Printer before you read this novel as maybe, you know, to get a handle of what Dick, how Dick imagines um, printing taking place. Um, but here, in this case, we have printing as a type of, of, of communication. And so they ask it, the first question they ask it is essentially, will we all be killed? And the answer they get is, you will go out onto your compound and not see your people. Then they ask to get who is our enemy. And the answer they get is influential circles. Finally, they ask, uh, they ask, what should we do is the next question. And the answer they get, and by the way, the way the Batench does this, it kind of pukes up some like jelly or something, which then forms into the thing, into the, the piece of paper, whatever is being printed. So they ask, what should we do? And they get a long answer that says, there are secret forces at work leading together those who belong together. We must yield to this attraction, then we make no mistakes. And then another piece of gelatin spits out, creating another little folded slip of paper that's actually addressed to Seth Morley. And this one says, often a man feels the urge to unite with others, but the individuals around him already form themselves into a group so that he remains isolated. He should then ally himself with a man who stands near to the center of the group and can help him gain admission to the closed circle. 
And there's, they try to interpret what this stuff means. And they ask it a few more questions. And finally, uh, Maggie Walsh asked it a big question. That is, essentially, why are we alive? Why are we even here? And the answer they get is to be in full fullness of possession and at the height of power. That's a little bit too cryptic for them to understand. And then there's one more question they ask, and that is, is there a God? And the answer they get is, you will not believe me. And they conclude that this means if the tench says no, they wouldn't believe him because obviously God is real in this world and manifest. And if they said yes, it wouldn't, their belief wouldn't be based on the tench's statement. So either way, the tench is, is making a correct statement. Um, now, at, at the end of this conversation they have with the tench, they, they talk about the spreading of knowledge and they speak about knowledge and where knowledge comes from. And this, and this kind of leads us to something that Dick's very interested in, which is mythology. And specifically, we go to uh, Norse um, philosophy, Norse religious, religion and mythology. And usually Dick seems to get this from the Wagner ring cycle. I don't know if he read the original source material, but I recognize a lot of this stuff from the, the ring cycle by Wagner. Uh, and, you know, of course, Wotan gets his staff and his power by losing his eye, right? So, um, and of course he gets knowledge by hanging himself, but the, the focus here is on, on the, the loss of the eye, right? And then his ambition to build Valhalla, to build a, the castle of the gods. And they think that maybe this building has some connection to Valhalla. Um, but it's not really clear. There's just kind of musings they're having on the nature of knowledge, the, the nature of, of the creative force, and, and the divinity. Um, but anyways, what really bothers them is that they really have no grounding to understand what's going on based on their understanding of Spectrovsky's book, their, their core theology. So we see them actually venturing out into other mythologies to try to find answers, despite of a firm belief that their theological uh, system is true, 100% true. So anyways, they finally make it back to the base, and Glenn Belsner is discussing his killing of Tony. And they debate whether there should be a legal process over you know, the murder and whether there should be some kind of inquest. And eventually they decide that it's kind of futile at this point, right? Too many people have died. The group's breaking down. They're, they're, this violence is building up. And there's really no point to a legal process. It wouldn't be respected anyways. So they decide to go look at, at Russell's, Ned Russell's stuff to see if there's any clues or ways they can contact the satellite. Who's the last to come? So they think maybe just we'll get lucky and there'll be something on his noser that the nosers are the one-way ships that took them to this planet, that maybe there'll be some ways of them measure, measuring, getting to the satellite. And what they find in his noser is actually the absence of something that's very shocking. And that's that he doesn't have a copy of Spektowski's book, which everyone has, right? Even if they don't read it very religiously, everyone should have it. Again, because it's, it's a proven theology. There's no reason you wouldn't have it, right? If... For instance, if the Christian God was proven to be true, you would need to have the Bible just to get through life, right? To, to understand how to interpret him and talk to him and all that stuff. You know, the, there's no room for doubt in that system. So why would someone not have 
a book. And this leads Glenn Belsner, who's thinking about this, to really conclude that maybe they really are mental patients because the only kind of people who wouldn't have a book would, would have to be someone who's mentally ill. Quote, there is one class of people who did not carry a copy of Spektowski's book. Did not carry it because they were not allowed to read it. The ostriches shut up in the planet-wide aviary at Terra. Those who lived in the sand pile because they had crumbled under the enormous psychological pressures suffered while emigrating. Since all the other planets in the solar system were uninhabitable, emigration meant a trip to another star system and the insidious beginning for many of, a, of space illness, of loneliness, and uprootedness. End quote. Now, a lot of interesting stuff in there. First, we, we start to learn about the geography of this universe they're in. That's, I mean, the only people on Earth are these mental patients. Everyone who's psychologically capable of leaving can leave, right? But we also learn that the major psychological pressure that people feel in these long emigrations is this sense of kind of loneliness, of lack of meaning, of lack of purpose, of just like wasting away your life, which of course is the root problem for all of our characters. And it's, it's something that Dick's really trying to explore in this novel and in Galactic Pot Healer. Um, now, Glenn Belsner then looks at his body and he sees that he has a, a tattoo, Perseus 9. And later we learn that a lot of the characters have this Perseus 9 tattoo on their, on their body. And this actually leads them to think even more strongly, at least Glenn Belsner, that they are mental patients, that this Perseus 9 is simply their asylum that they've escaped from, or more likely they're being experimented on. Now, Babel emerges, he's the MD, and he announces that he has lost Roberto Rockingham and that she's gone somewhere. So we lose another character, not sure if she's dead yet. We do find out what happens to Roberto Rockingham in the next kind of part of the chapter, where she just essentially gets picked up by, by a man calling himself Sergeant, Sergeant Nichols. And he's like, it's time to go. We need to take you away. Right? And again, this kind of confirms that maybe they are mental patients in an experiment. It's failing, so they start to collect people one by one. And the first one they collect is the old woman, Roberta Rockingham. So as chapter 11 opens... Oh, now is when the others come back from the expedition. All that stuff happened when it was just the remaining people at the base. At that point, it's just Belsner and Belsner and, and Babel, the doctor, the only ones left. Tony and Kozler are dead and Roberta has been picked up and left, so it's just the two left. Uh, the six survivors of the, of the expedition to the, to the building have come back with news of B.J. Burns' death. So this leaves just eight, right? The Seth and Mary Morley. Uh, Frazier, um, the psychologist, Maggie Walsh, the theologian, Ignaz Thug, Thermoplastics, Belsner, the electrician, Russell, the economist, and Babel, the, the doctor. And they immediately get into a fight over leadership, beginning again. Basically, you know, who's going to lead now? Things are breaking down. And, and during this struggle and during this fighting that breaks out, eventually Ignaz Thug gets the gun and asserts his dominance over the group. And he's always been kind of presenting himself as a tough guy in the group anyways, and he asserts his kind of physical dominance over his group, and now he has a weapon to back that up. Um, Maggie Walsh then tries to use the book, uh, Spektowski's book, this the theological book, to try to disarm Thug. And it's kind of an interesting scene where she starts to read from the book in a kind of a threatening way towards Ignatz Thud, uh, almost like trying to perform some kind of exorcism on him using the theological truth, truth of the book, but she just opens up the book at random and starts reading to him a, a very odd section about curses and and uh, when God walks on the earth and all this. 
And Thug warns her to stay away, stay away, and eventually she she shoots, she shot. Um, and she, while she's being killed, she has a vision, a theological vision of her own, much like uh, B.J. Byrne had. In this case, she envisions the final audit, which is something that is kind of part of their theology, uh, that at the end of time, there's going to be a final audit, just like there's a final judgment, right? Again, as I said before, Dick made a point of saying this was a unique theology, but so much is borrowed from other extant theologies. I, I have a hard time believing the originality of this. I think he's kind of twisting our nose a little bit with this. But anyway, she, as she dies, she has a vision of the final audit. Now, Seth Morley, at the end of chapter 11, is determined to get the gun away from the now psychotic Ignatz thug. And that, that's all that happens in chapter 11. It's a rather short one. Now, as is chapter 12. In chapter 12, uh, we basically get an action scene where Morley is fighting with Thug and ch they're chasing through the building. And eventually Morley is shot by Thug in the arm. Uh, this, this kind of ends the fighting for the time being as Ignatz Thug kind of hides off, runs away. And then Seth is taken to the doctor who performs an operation on his wounded arm. And he basically sort of fixes his arm somewhat. And while he's in the hospital bed, a couple of men arrive claiming that they've arrived to save Seth Morley's life. And, and that's what happens in chapter 12. Like I said, it's an extremely, incredibly short chapter, maybe the shortest chapter in, in the book. And it just, like Roberto Rockingham, now Seth Morley is being picked up by some outsiders who seem to have appeared. Um, so that's all I want to talk about, the only chapters I want to talk about today. In the next episode, we'll look at chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, which will get us to the end of this story and get us to a place where we can make some final conclusions about it. Now, what's going on in this chapter? Well, we have uh, a lot here about the subjective experiences are becoming, the subjective experiences are becoming greater and greater. That's, that's really what's happening here, both in the fact that some characters are becoming psychotic, others are, uh, they're, coming, they're breaking up a little bit because of their subjective experiences. They're not able to come together around a leader or around a decision. Uh, they start to, like, for instance, the best evidence of this is that they all see the building as having a different function, but we've seen Tony Duckelwald having his psychotic visions. We have people who die, drown, or be shot, have different kind of theological visions. So all our characters are beginning to break down um, in, into disparate kind of experiences. Um, there's also the, the whole in, deal with the tench and the question and answer and, and, and how they're able to kind of communicate with their universe in a way, by through this process, I think that's kind of an interesting thing. I I think Dick makes this novel intentionally vague and ambiguous. Um, you know, it's not like a mystery where the clues are all there for you. Um, the best theory we have at this point in the story is that they are all mental patients in some sort of weird experiment, and and that's proven or seems as highly suggested to be true by the fact that some characters are being taken away by essentially men in you know armed men in. Uh, who kind of intrude on the scene and drag them away. So anyway, that's, that's going to be it for now. If you have any of your own thoughts about A Maze of Death, please, please um, share them below, especially uh, this part of, of the novel. Uh, we're going to look at the, the, the final chapters next time where we'll see where all this leads. So thanks as always for listening, and I will we'll see you next time as we finish up A Maze of Death. To feel these changes happening in me